Welcome to Market Corner Conversations, sponsored by Foresight Health. This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great health care they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. We have an absolutely terrific program today. Dr. Jonathan Zentelman is a professor of medicine, dermatology, and obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine with a joint appointment at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. How's that for a mouthful? John is well-known internationally for his work in infectious disease, epidemiology, especially regarding sexually transmitted infections at the CDC, Baltimore City Health Department, and he's also exceptionally well-known as a researcher, author, and mentor. Uh, and on top of everything else, he's absolutely hilarious. So, Jonathan, welcome to uh, Market Corner Conversations. We're absolutely delighted to have you here. Great to be with you, David. Well, Jonathan, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you ended up not only in healthcare but studying infectious disease? Sure. And uh, as I think, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not surprising to many people uh, who end up in interesting careers. It wasn't a straight path. Uh, I originally uh, went to college to study chemistry and was uh, decided halfway between doing a chemistry PhD and a doctor and, and going to medical school, decided to go to medical school, went to medical school at SUNY Downstate in New York and graduated in 1981. Originally, I was going to do pathology and actually was going to do pathology in Chicago uh, and had a, re- had a residency there set up. And my pathology resident at the U of C said to me, Jonathan, if you really want to become a great pathologist, do a year of internal medicine. Hmm. So I stayed at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn where I was in medical school and decided to do a year of internal medicine. It was 1981. 1981 was the beginning of AIDS. And right, Between right. 1981 and 84, which was when I was a resident, I basically witnessed the evolution of this completely new and horrific infectious disease. During my internship, uh, in December of my internship, uh, so December of 1981, I actually got hepatitis B a month before the vaccine. I uh, was out of work for two months. And at the end of January, I called up Chicago and said, you know, I really like this medicine stuff, so I'm going to stay in medicine uh, and decided to finish my uh, residency in internal medicine uh, at Downstate. Because of all the infectious disease stuff that we saw, and also there were large epidemics of tuberculosis and other things at the time, which actually fascinated me, Mm -hmm. I went to my mentor, who was the newly appointed infectious disease chief, and said, you know, Dr. McCormick, uh, his name was Bill McCormick. Dr. McCormick, I'd really like to do ID. What do you think I should do? And he said, you should go to the CDC and be part of the Epidemic Intelligence Service Program, which is the uh, medical epidemiology training program which CDC runs, which is actually in the movies, such as Contagion, 
an outbreak and things like that. It's not as dramatic as that. It's obviously, but <laughs> you don't wear those outfits with the with the helmets and the in the, the green and so on. Okay, right. But but I think the important point is the real the the point here is really the importance of mentors and people to guide you because I had no idea uh, about what the CDC program was, and that was literally life changing for me. It got me into sexually transmitted infections. And that, in turn, in its own in its own path, and landed me at Hopkins in 1989. How scary a time was it in the early 80s when the AIDS epidemic was breaking out? And it was scary on multiple levels because AIDS was first described in June of 1981. So I started my training in July, uh, and. New York, where I was, was one of the epicenters. The big epicenters in the United States at that time were New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, and then it spread to other cities. I think there was a couple of things going on that made it very, very scary. One was that this was a mysterious disease, and basically these were folks who were young, and they all died. And I think, you know, and I think people who weren't around at that time or weren't old enough don't ha- don't re- don't remember what it was like to have these patients who were literally looked like they walked out of a concentration camp and when you made a diagnosis of aids the average lifespan after that diagnosis was 6 months the other problem the other issue was we didn't know what caused it the virus was not discovered until 1984 uh, 1983, and the test wasn't discovered until wasn't really developed until 1984. So we went through our whole training, not knowing what was causing this, and you know we were immersed in blood and secretions all the time. That was what interns did, and you know, and we had no idea whether we would become exposed or infected with this because nobody knew what it was. So it was really a quite. It was really a scary time. So was there any progress at all between eighty one and eighty four, or just the the deaths mounting? Um, there was a lot of progress in understanding the epidemiology and uh, and the risks, uh, and I think it, it evolved. So we knew uh, that you know by nineteen eighty two eighty three we knew that this was sexually transmitted between gay men. We knew that it was uh, transmitted by drug use. Uh, for example, I'll never forget in um, February, early 1983, I had two cousins who both were dying of AIDS and they had shared needles together. Oh, boy. I mean, so that was something which was not uncommon. What wasn't worked out at that time was the heterosexual transmission piece. Uh, and I think people may, rem- you know, there was a, there were terms that we used at the time called the four H's. It was homosexuals, hemophiliacs, Haitians, and uh, I think it was heterosexuals with multiple partners. But I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I think, but you know, and, and you needed to fall into one of those four risk groups. Which wasn't really, which actually, you know, was a problem later when it became clear that, you know, these th- you know, um, uh, these things were actually transmitted, uh, you know, to multiple other groups, and it was much more universal. And on the flip side of that, it's one of the great successes in sort of epidemiology and prevention, diagnosis, and so on, to the point where 
AIDS, which as you so eloquently described, was almost an immediate death sentence. Oh, the evolution of uh, the, the evolution of the, of AIDS is an incredible story because you know, and, and it actually ironically has some some uh, unintended consequences. But the incredible story meaning is that we know how to. We know how to diagnose it early. We know how to treat it. We know how to prevent it. Uh, treatment, effective treatment, basically renders you non-transmissible to others, and also gives you a life expectancy which is almost normal. Uh, so, for example, the average age in most large university-based HIV clinics is now people in their fifties. Uh, so, and that's because these folks are act living longer. And actually, the major problem for them is not is not their HIV as much, but the accelerated cardiovascular disease and mm. cancer risks, and th you know the things that you get when you get older just maybe accelerated a little bit more because of the inflammatory response due to HIV. The other thing is also we know how to prevent it. So, for example, not only being under treatment, but there's a variety of regimens called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So if you know that you're, a risk, you're, you're engaged in a risky lifestyle, if you take uh, you know, tenofovir, which is one of the HIV drugs, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you'll prevent yourself from becoming infected. There are also uh, antiretroviral uh, rings, very similar to contraceptive rings, which women can use and things like that. The collateral, the, the unintended consequence piece, though, is that, you know, is that this has resulted in something called behavioral disinhibition. So, whereas ah. HIV used to be a death sentence, literally, uh, it's now seen as a manageable disease. So the, so, so the risky behavior part of that, you know, of the background or the, uh, is actually has been disinhibited, so folks are having riskier sex, and we've seen, and I think this is in large part uh, manifest by major increases in sexually transmitted infections and other diseases in gay men and to some degree even heterosexuals. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan was featured uh, in The Tipping Point, and I'm, uh, I'm desperate to know, and I bet the audience is too, uh, Jonathan, how Malcolm Gladwell found you, and 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 what was what was uh, what was that like to to be part of a a bestseller like that? That was a blast, but I have to say it was again one of those uh, chance events. Uh, what happened was Gladwell was at that time he was a, a writer for the New Yorker. Uh, it was because Tipping Point was really his first book, and he wasn't that well known. And he was basically the Tipping Point, as you may recall, is looking at, you know, combining social science and social science observation with epidemics and looking at how, uh, how trends occur and at what point, uh, the tipping point is literally the inflection point at which a disease or social, uh, or social um, event starts to accelerate in its incidence. And... Uh, he was looking at sexually transmitted infections, was talking to a friend of mine uh, named John Potterat, has done a lot of work on partner tracing and sexually transmitted disease epidemiology out in Colorado. And John told Malcolm 
I think you should go speak to Jonathan in Baltimore. And the reason he suggested that is we had been uh, working, we were one of the first groups to use uh, uh, GIS technology, which had just been coming out and just been commercially available. So we were using GIS technology to map sexually transmitted infections in Baltimore. And it turns out to be an incredibly useful tool because uh, STDs, like many other infectious diseases, are community-based events. Our hypothesis was if you can map these out, you can really know which block groups or uh, which neighborhoods to specifically target rather than go citywide. So we had developed these dynamic maps of an ongoing syphilis epidemic which had occurred in Baltimore starting in about 1997. And Malcolm came out and asked, uh, asked, to see, you know, asked me about what we were doing. We showed him the maps, and we had these time sequences showing how the disease was spreading throughout the city, and it was spreading. There's a couple of reasons which he goes into in the book, uh, which included whether there was care uh, provision, which uh, reductions in care resources, uh, blowing up of housing projects, which were dis- which disrupted the sexual networks and actually dispersed people to other parts of town, which was a very interesting hypothesis huh. as well. Huh. Or what you also saw, you saw a disease like the truck drivers in Africa. Yes, right? yeah, yes. Well, yeah. I was just going to go into this. Yeah, you okay. saw the disease spread along the major. Uh, street routes, and it was actually related to uh, to drug sales. It was related to use of to the illicit drug trade. So um, he actually was taken with that. And then I said to him at the end, he just spent a, half a day with me. And I said, I said to him after that, I said, do you want to actually go take a ride and take a look at these places? So we did that. We spent the rest of the day just walking, you know, driving around town, and giving him some correlation. And that was it. Uh, about six months later, John from Colorado called me up and says, Jonathan, do you know uh, you're in a book? <laughs> but actually, to Malcolm's credit, actually, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's been very gracious uh, with us, uh, and he actually has done uh, some lectures for the CDC uh, pretty much for free. And whenever he's give, if he's in town, he's giving a talk, and, and I'm and I'm in the neighborhood. I just let the folks know that I'm in the audience, and he's always uh, been very gracious in having me come back since he's become, you know, a big guy now. Well, I th- I think it's fair to say you made him famous. It's clear to, clear to me anyway. <laughs> well, that's that's great. But you know that story, Jonathan, sort of brings together. The, these connections between environment and behaviors and healthcare and institutional supports or lack thereof, uh, and how so much of that is what drives the overall health status of a community. It's much less specifically the the disease and its treatment. It, it, if you see what I'm getting at, sort of this, we create these ecosystems and they're either healthier or less healthy. And if they're less healthy, bad things can and do happen and sometimes spiral out of control. Could you just talk about that within some of the – within the context of the bigger trends in infectious disease? So I think you're actually talking about two different features here. And one is uh, – one is the social determinants of health. Yep. And the other is the intervention piece, which is actually the importance of structural 
structural interventions, uh, which actually are, and this, the, the, the social determinants and structural inter, inter, uh, interventions are intimately related. So I think to your point, uh, you know, we are products of our, you know, we are definitely products of our environment, uh, and there are a couple of exceptions. One of the big exceptions is one which I just mentioned before, and that is that major changes in life expectancy for HIV are directly related to uh, drug development of drug therapy. However, that actually stands out compared to most other infectious disease and most other disease processes mm-hmm. in general, whereas the major advances in life expectancy were not related to direct medical interventions, but basically, but more importantly, changes in, uh, in social uh, structural issues such as nutrition, sanitation, uh, access, uh, and, other, uh, and other aspects which actually contribute to, some, to an individual's ability to follow through on, let's just term it being healthy. So our ability to to have a healthy lifestyle is in part driven by where we live, where we come from, and who our who our friends and contacts are. We would call that the social network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, let's go from the in, you know from the outside in the social network. We know if, if you're obese or you smoke, your social your social network, the people you hang out with, are more likely to be, to have those risks. Same thing for drug use and high-risk sexual behavior. On the other hand, if you take it all the way to the other side, if you have major challenges in accessing health care, let's say, for example, if you live in a neighborhood where it is impossible or very difficult to buy healthy foods because you live in a food desert, if you're... Uh, if you don't have good transportation options and cannot get easily to health care or to other resources, or if you, uh, for example, if there's language issues and you don't understand uh, what, you know, what your health care issues are, and language, or even beyond that, something called health literacy. I'll never forget... You know, I was uh, at a community meeting in East Baltimore. This goes back about 20 years ago, and we were talking about different sexually transmitted diseases and other infections. At the end, a very lovely woman came to me and said, you know, how can I explain to my child, and she had a teenage, a young teenage daughter, how to protect herself and how to take care of herself if I don't understand really what this is all about? Uh, and, I, and I think part of the problem is, is that as healthcare professionals, we know that our patients are very reluctant to tell us that they really don't understand what we're telling them because they don't want to look dumb. They don't want to feel dumb. So I think it's, it's, a, it's actually incumbent on us to open the door and say, listen, it's okay to ask me questions. In fact, I want you to ask me questions about these things, because it's really important for me that you understand what we're talking about. But doing that in a very non-judgmental way, mm-hmm. that's really hard to do in a 10-minute conversation. This is something which takes time and also some cultural sensitivity and understanding. 
So I think if we look at all of this together, there's a whole host of social factors related to access, income, education, the, the chaos of daily life for many people, uh, sometimes taking care of older adults or younger kids and their family, high levels of stress, uh, all of which may, which directly contribute to adverse health outcomes, for example, through increased stress levels, but also make the logistics of doing the things that would be healthy very, very difficult. Well, you know, Jonathan, you've been on the front lines, really, of, of not only infectious disease, but working in neighborhoods that, that are, are, are challenged in any number of different ways for really almost the better part of 40 years. And in some ways, it feels like we're, we're going backward, not going forward. Where, where I'm in Chicago right now, downtown Chicago, life expectancy for men is in the mid-80s. Um, if you go four or five miles west to Garfield Park, uh, life expectancy for males is in the low 60s. There's a 14 to 15-year gap in life expectancy. And most of that is due to chronic disease. And for the first time in the country, we actually uh, are seeing – is uh, we're witnessing declines in life expectancy. So, you know, 40 years of, of science and progress and understanding and yet at the grassroots level in many of the toughest uh, – or most challenged neighborhoods in, in the country, like Baltimore, where you work, uh, it doesn't feel like uh, we're able to keep up. Is, is that an accurate assessment? And what do you say about that? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have the same disparity in Baltimore here. In, in my, I live in Baltimore City in my neighborhood in Mount Washington uh, compared to uh, Santan Winchester, which is about four miles away. Uh, there's a over a 20-year uh, life expectancy difference. 20 years. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 think you're at, I think the issues are chronic, you know, are related to chronic disease. Uh, if, if we take, for example, the, the, there's, there's two other factors which, are, which drive some of this, and that is one is violent, you know, homicide and violent, you know, and assaults, and the other is opiate use uh, and drug use. If we take those out, and we'll discuss those in a second, there's still an enormous difference. Uh, and I think in large part that's driven by many of the, we don't understand, you know, just providing care isolated, in an isolated fashion. Uh, you know, so for example, without the supports necessary to implement that does not change the equation. You really have to take a holistic view towards providing health care and provide people with the tools to be an education uh, to be able to access it, and I think that's part of the problem. Just setting up a, just setting up clinics doesn't really make difference. Mm-hmm. I think also there's a tremendous amount of education that's necessary. For example, there's large numbers of people who still don't understand uh, or know that you know to understand why it's important to take blood pressure medicines. You know, people say if I'm not, you know, if, it, because if I'm not having symptoms, it's not important for me to take it. I think we made headway in that, but there's still a large way to wow. go. There's still a large way to go. I think the related to what you mentioned in terms of decreased uh, life expectancy uh, in the country, 
that is almost ex- that's almost totally driven by the opiate epidemic. Okay, uh, and that's uh, not only in the big cities, but also uh, in you know in the Midwest, in the rural areas where it's particularly uh, striking. Part of the reason it's actually in the rural areas, it you know although I think now the past year or so we've really come to appreciate it. There are fewer people that live there, so the numbers aren't as high as they are in the cities. But when you calculate rates, it's actually extraordinarily high. That's devastating. And ironically, ironically, 20 years ago, similar trends were seen in the Soviet Union after the breakup of the Soviet Union and uh, decreased life expectancy due primarily to alcoholism, uh, not drug use there, but all very similar trends of social despair, loss of economic opportunity, um, breakup of infrastructure, which uh, had which was socially, which had provided social services for a long time. Maybe not the greatest, but there was a there was a base of social services that were provided, and and, and so I think we're seeing in some parts of the country a very similar type of trend. Massive structural dislocation. So let's kind of switch now to another area of focus and interest that that I think you know relates directly to this, which is uh, academic education, how we train professionals, how we use resources, and so on. And I know you've got some very strong, uh, well-developed opinions on how we could do a better job of training the next generation of professionals to address the types of problems you're describing where – often being a good listener and um, kind of someone, a, a good coach, uh, is as important as, as being able to do an accurate diagnosis or at least uh, maybe even more important in some cases um, because the diagnosis is fairly straightforward. But could you just talk to us about big picture, two, three, four things, your thoughts on um, sort of academic medicine, the training of doctors, and what we need to do differently to better meet the needs of, of the public, particularly in, in tough neighborhoods like the ones sure. where you serve. A couple of things. And I think uh, – and these may or may not be connected depending on how they come out. <laughs> we'll uh, so see. I hope I'm, yeah. I'm re- <laughs> yeah. I hope I'm reasonably coherent. And sometimes uh, my ideas are a little bit out there. So some, you know, if, if you want to take some of this with a grain of salt, that's okay. Um, if we look at the United States healthcare system and say what uh, what do how do we differ than other systems which actually do a very or be, a much better job at providing uh, healthcare with healthcare outcomes? And actually, there interestingly is a system in the United States which does that, and it's called the VA. Mm-hmm. The VA actually has very good outcomes uh, with. Uh, the patient population that's not always the most easy to manage. So um, I think there's the biggest challenge is that we're completely reversed in the number of primary care physicians that we have compared to specialists. And part of this is driven by the healthcare, uh, the academic education system, and part of it is financial. It's very common for us to see patients come to us when we see in the hospital who may have three or four different doctors, each are prescribing different medications for different conditions, and there's nobody who's coordinating anything. Uh, and I think many people who have 
a chronic illness or who have a relative with a chronic illness can appreciate this. And I think it's really important to have a primary health care physician who really understands everything that's going on with the patient and can coordinate the overall care. Unfortunately, there aren't enough of those. And second, the reimbursement for primary care is woefully inadequate. Uh, So therefore, it becomes a career which is unattractive uh, for many people, especially if they're graduating medical school uh, with high debt loads. Uh, and it's you know you can pay off your you know it's not uncommon to have med- people graduating medical school with with loan with loan loads of two hundred two hundred fifty thousand dollars and if, if you take a surgical subspecialty or a procedure specialty uh, you can pay that off much faster uh, so I think there's a disconnect in terms of what we need in the workforce and how the workforce is structured. I uh was talking to somebody just this week who was making the point they thought that we'd had a 50-year history of underinvestment in primary care. In the I United think that's South. absolutely correct. And we're paying enormous consequences. Yes, and that. not only that, but actually it's, it's not only the financial side, but also the, you know, it's not prestigious to become a primary care doctor. Okay. Uh, and it's not rewarded. You know, uh, people aspire to be neurosurgeons or interventional cardiologists. But if you, tell, if you told your grandma that you wanted to become a primary care internist and listen to people all day, they would kind of look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Hmm. Uh, so I think that whole perception needs to change, even though we know that probably listening is the most important skill because when you listen to patients, as opposed to when you listen to them and hear out their stories and hear what's going on in their life, you have much better insight into whether they, first of all, whether they have a physical illness or whether they have something else going on. Uh, and second, you know, in my, one of my, my, my department chair at Hopkins has always said the history is 85% of the story. The tests, the labs, and the x-rays get you the other 10%. And we've reversed that. It's not a, you know, we would see patient, it's, we, we see people who see patients for five minutes and then order thousands of dollars of lab tests rather than actually sitting down and figuring it out. And the reason is, is you don't get paid for listening to people. You get paid for ordering stuff. Huh. So I think the financial incentives are completely screwed up in that way. Well, and it also seems like we may not necessarily be putting all of the right types of people into medical school. Well, that, yeah, that's enough. And, yeah. And I think, to be fair, medical school training has been evolving along these lines. Is it yeah. where I think we should be? The answer is not yet, but I think there has been a lot more focus being paid, you know, pay, being paid on, being paid to how to interact with patients, listening skills, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, role-playing now in medical school. However, uh, is it, you know, um, is most of medical school still, like, understanding the genetics of complex diseases and the physiology and all that stuff? And I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, you know, do we 
you know, who, who, you know, who, you know, and I, this, this is where I may be a little bit icon, more iconoclastic, is in all of the super not, science not, stuff not that you. you take in undergraduate school, important for medical school, the answer is for, for most of what you do, you can learn, for most of what you need to know, you can learn a lot of that. And I think identifying people with skill sets, uh, the humanistic skill sets, is actually something which really uh, is incredibly important and underappreciated. So we'll kind of land after this this question, Jonathan. But this has been a remarkable, you know, conversation that's sort of covered the entire uh, duration of your career with lots of interesting twists and turns, some celebrities, some surprises, some disappointments. So, you know, I how you know as, as you're sitting as we're sitting here closing in or coming close to the year 2020. Um, how, how do you feel we are as a country and sort of how we're approaching the health and health care of the American people? Are, are you sort of optimistic, pessimistic, not sure which <laughs> it changes day to day? But I'm not sure where we're – I think – I'm not sure where we're going, but I think we're in a better place than where we were. Okay. I think the major point is something which you've made in some of your uh, – you know, in some of your blog posts, uh, and also something which is actually in the literature, quite you know, is quite an issue is an issue in the literature, and that is that the increased expenses in healthcare basically have evolved into a tax on the American mm-hmm. worker, and increased productivity from the workers from the American workforce has not translated into wage gain, but has translated into increased health insurance costs. Right. And I think that's very, very real. And we see this, you know, one of the, uh, you know, and, and there are various estimates of how much waste there is in the system, uh, you know, but it's, it's commonly acknowledged that about a third of healthcare costs are a waste. And this is not this is and then this and then there's also added administrative costs because of the crazy quilt work of insurance systems that we have. Um, my my sense, you know, that's one second, and we saw this play out with the Obamacare debate. Um, I think there is a real desire in this country to have some type of universal health care coverage. Uh, there's a lot of politics around that, but if somebody is sick and shows up to an emergency department, uh, we are not a country that's going to say, listen, you didn't pay your health care premium last year, so we're not going to take care of you, right. which basically means that the fault is that we have to have some type of universal care. Uh, and I think there's an evolution towards that. Um, the politics make all this very hard because once you start, you know, developing rational approaches to providing health care and saying, you know, what's really effective, what's not, uh, the screams go up in terms of rationing and death panels and that type of stuff. However, I think what's going to drive change in this is that the costs really are out of line and people... You know, and we cannot continue where we are. So I think that that recognition, I think that recognition is pretty, you know, people know it, and I think they just don't have the courage uh, 
or the political will to make it happen. But I think, so that, that gives me optimism. I think what also gives me optimism is that there's a lot of interest uh, in understanding, there's a lot of interest in the medical community uh, and more and, and increasingly in the, uh, in the consumer community of understanding what actually is healthcare, what is health, and, and how do we provide it in the most efficient and best way. Um, I think this is, however, I'm not as pessimistic as, you know, but, but I think it's not going to be something that's going to be solved in a year or two. Um, and we also see examples of other places. For example, the, the UK uh, had a system which provided really very good primary care and very good specialty care to people who were sick. Uh, it was sometimes inconvenient. Mm-hmm but it did a very good job, but it was underfunded. The past 10 years, it's been incredibly underfunded, and now it's falling apart. So I think there's important lessons to learn from those places. Um, the other area is um, uh, integration and aligning incentives. And that's probably the most important part here, and I think also this is something which you've spoken about yeah. as well, if you're looking at a Kaiser Permanente type of system, the incentives are lined up. If you're looking at incentives where the hospitals and the physicians and the drug makers are all trying to make the most money out of an individual patient, the incentives are not aligned. So I think we have to have, I think we're going to see increasing movement towards aligning those incentives. And actually, Maryland has, has an experiment ongoing where actually there's a payment structure to try to make that happen at a structural level. Whether it works or not it's a different, is a different story, but I think we're going to see a lot more of these experiments happening. Right, out there. right, right. I, I agree with you on, on universal health insurance. Um, the Democratic Party, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party is pushing hard for a single-payer Medicare for all and um, so that's going to put it on the table. I, my own hope is that we'll there'll be an alternative, um, more pluralistic, more market-oriented set of solutions that, that also become part of the debate. But you know, to me, it's a little bit like um, Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. For the first couple of years of the Civil War, he was fighting only to keep the Union together and then he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. That became a second war goal and, um, and I think in many ways changed the entire moral character of the of the fight and, and was a major factor in propelling the, the, uh, the North to, uh, to victory. Um, we've been playing at the value game for a long time, still need to, lots of room, but uh, I, I think it's time to recognize we're a rich country and everybody deserves access to universe or to healthcare coverage that's, that's affordable and appropriate. It's just how to – and I think we need to figure out how to do it in a way that doesn't bust the bank, which means we've got to attack this waste that you were describing and use that to, to, to broaden access and, and uh, strengthen the, uh, the primary care, preventative care. Let me give you a very good example yeah. of where we're completely out of whack. We have, we're developing in our hospital a diabetic foot management program. Uh, the problem is, is that, and there's a, there's a very good example from Beth Israel in New York, 
from a number of years ago. Beth Israel in New York instituted a diabetic management program. They aggressively went out, had nurses helping patients manage their diabetes, identified risky patients, and so forth. Um, as a result, their amputation rates uh, for diabetic foot infections uh, and osteomyelitis, and the amputation is one of the major complications of diabetes, which has a whole host of social and economic downstream effects because you lose your leg, you can't work anymore, or it's difficult to work. So they were very successful in managing that program and reduced their amputation rates. However, the program had to close down because the <laughs> hospital was losing money. Yeah, there you go. By, because they were making tons of money on the surgical procedures. And so you take out their surgical procedures, and there was no reimbursement for the primary care to actually prevent the complications, which in a rational, integrated system where everything was aligned, you would have money at the end of the year to bonus your docs and nurses who were doing a good job. We maybe return some to the patients. Oh, boy. <laughs> on that, on that, uh, that hopeful note... Uh, Jonathan, this is, as I expected, would be, has just, just been a blast, and, and thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'm sure our audience is, is really going to enjoy your, your insights uh, and perspectives. So thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. If you're frustrated with healthcare, if you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, Please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American healthcare. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson.